morning. Our first Bible reading this morning is uh, Exodus chapter 30, verses 17 to 21, and can be found on page 69 of the Church Bibles. Exodus chapter 30, starting at 17. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a bronze basin with its bronze stand for washing. Place it between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it. Aaron and his sons are to wash their hands and feet with water from it. Whenever they enter the tent of meeting, they shall wash with water so that they will not die. Also, When they approach the altar to minister by presenting a food offering to the Lord, they shall wash their hands and feet so that they will not die. This is to be a lasting ordinance for Aaron and his descendants for the generations to come. And our next Bible reading is in the New Testament, Mark chapter 7, verses 1 to 30, and it's on 818. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers and kettles. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, These people honour me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. And he continued, You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, Honour your father and mother. And anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is Corban, that is devoted to God, then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. Thus, you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And you do many things like that. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. After he had left the crowd and entered the house... His disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull? he asked. Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach, and then out of the body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. He went on. What comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft... Murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. 
sorry, am I keep going? He entered the house and did not want anyone to know it, yet he could not keep his presence secret. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an impure spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek born in Syrian Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. First, let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Lord, she replied, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he told her, for such a reply, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. She went home and found her child lying on the bed and the demon gone. Well, Mel's right, that one does keep going, and uh, I'll encourage you to keep uh, that whole section, all of Mark 7, uh, open in front of you, for we'll be looking at that together today. Uh, Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we uh, come before you now. We long to sit under your word. We long to have you teach us and change us and make us more like Christ. Soften our hearts that we might receive the words of eternal life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, there are a number of questions uh, that you can ask someone that cut straight to the heart of what it is they truly believe. Uh, So as pastors, James and I use these questions uh, to get beyond the trivial and dive deep to the heart of true spirituality. They're enormously helpful questions as we uh, try to minister the gospel to people. Uh, One very helpful question that you might have heard before, but one that James and I use quite often is this. We say to people sometimes when we're trying to work out where they stand, we say, look, if you were to die tonight and find yourself before God and God himself were to say to you, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? You see, that question peels back all the layers in one swoop, really, and it cuts straight to the heart of someone's view of religion and sin and grace. You know, I can remember about 20 years ago, door-knocking an apartment block in the city of Pune in India. And most of the people when we door-knocked who had entered the door were Hindu. And I remember being invited into this one house uh, of an older lady uh, who had a large poster of Jesus on the wall. From all appearances, she appeared Christian. And I asked her that question. I said, look, if you were to die tonight and find yourself before God, and God said, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? She wasn't really up for talking, uh, but she eventually gave up that, uh, that she would say to Jesus or to God, well, I've kept the Ten Commandments. That's what she'd say. In essence, her reply to God would be, well, I've been pretty good. Of course, the question is, is that good enough? And really, that's what today's whole section uh, in Mark 7 is about. Our story today uh, is going to give us three insights. We're going to get an insight into religion, an insight into sin, and an insight into grace. Religion, sin, and grace. So let's start by having a look at religion, uh, chapter 7, verses 1 to 13. Uh, The setting for our story today is that Jesus is now moving across the chapter of 7, Mark 7, from Jewish territory, Galilee, to Gentile or pagan territory, which is the region of Tyre. So he's moving uh, from uh, Jews to Gentiles. 
And it is in our first story where Jesus interacts with the Jewish leaders that we get our first insight, that into religion. And the presenting issue that comes before us in this section is all about moral and spiritual defilement. Now, a little bit of background here which will help us know what's going on. Jews at this time lived among pagans. Jews lived among non-Jews. They would walk past them in the street. They would possibly live nearby them. They might even shop near each other at local similar markets. So the risk of coming into contact with a pagan or a non-Jew was high. And at this time, uh, pagans customarily did things that Jews absolutely abhorred. So pagans would eat food that had been sacrificed to idols. Uh, Pagans were known to be sexually promiscuous. Uh, Pagans, uh, sorry, commonplace for pagans was both adultery and sodomy, we're told. They aborted their unborn, therefore defiling themselves with having contact with the dead, all things that Jews would not. Bottom line, they were filthy. Pagans were impure. And God's people had to be protected at all costs. That's what verse 3 is referring to, if you see that there. And so outside every Jewish house would stand a large stone jar where Jews would wash their hands before they would eat. Now, this was not really about hygiene. This was about moral and spiritual defilement. Just in case a Jew had accidentally come into contact with one of the filthy Gentiles out there. And we pick up our action in verse 5, where the Pharisees say to Jesus, Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders, instead of eating their food with defiled hands? See, what's what's happened here is that the disciples have eaten food without washing first uh, to cleanse themselves of their moral and spiritual defilement. So then Jesus responds, verse 6, see that? He says, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honour me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. And then Jesus says, you have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. Now, here's why Jesus says this, and this is a key point, okay? Here is why Jesus says this. The Old Testament did not call for Jews to wash. The Old Testament didn't call for Jews to wash. Yes, the Old Testament called for priests to wash and cleanse themselves like this, but not for the average Jew. Now, the reason the Old Testament law called upon Old Testament priests to wash a particular way before they came near to God was largely symbolic. God was showing Israel through the priesthood that he was pure and holy and perfect, and as such, a pure, holy and perfect God could not let anything imperfect or impure near him. So impure and imperfect people, even the priests, would have to wash for them to come close to him. The law at this point in the Old Testament was making the point that God was holy and that people were not. But what the Pharisees had done was taken a law for Old Testament priests and turned it into a tradition for everyone. And that is what this is all about. And Jesus is incensed. Because he knows that rule upon rule upon rule distorts God's law and kills God's people. And he knows the Pharisees here are doing it for their own gain. See, that's what's behind that tricky little section in verses 9 to 13. Just look at 9 to 13, where that word korban comes up. Is that, did you sort of fade, fade out at that point and think, oh, whatever, and then came in a bit later on when you got it again? That's what we do, I know. But let me tell you what's going on. 9 to 13, Jesus here is illustrating his charge 
that these men have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. And so he gives an example of it, another example apart from washing hands. That's what he says in verse 10. So Jesus says, For Moses said, Honour your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. Jesus, he quotes the law. That's what the law absolutely said in both Exodus and Deuteronomy. But then Jesus says to them, and this is my paraphrasing of what Jesus says, Jesus says to them, But you are siphoning off money that should be used for parents according to the law, and you are directing that money that you get towards the temple for your own gain. And because someone has said a religious creed or formula over it, that's the word korban, you are therefore saying that it can't be used to care for someone's parents. See what you're doing? You are breaking the law. That's what he's saying to them. Then verse 13, he summarizes it. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition, which you've handed down. And you do many things like that. Friends, I've said that here we have an insight into religion, and we do. You do know that humans are inherently religious creatures. That's why there is no people group on the face of the earth that is without religion. Atheists scatter around the place there may well be, but every, every people group across time and space worships. We've been made to. But here's the thing. Every religion across the face of the planet also holds that we must do something to get right with God. Okay, so, so we sin, we all know that, and so we need to make amends. It's the whole idea of the scales of justice. So if you were to ask your average Australian next-door neighbour over the fence when you're mowing the lawn this afternoon, mate, I've got a, can I have a quick chat? Yeah, yeah, just wondering. If you were to die tonight, do you think you'd go to heaven? Try that. So there you go. You know what they'll say? Almost certainly, if they've grown up, grown up with our worldview, they'll say, mate, I hope so. I think I've been good enough. And what they're saying, what they're communicating back to you is that what they think and what they feel is that the good sort of outweighs the bad. I haven't murdered anyone. I'm not a bad bloke. So I hope I'm in. I keep the, good, I keep the Ten Commandments. I do good works, things I do. I wash my hands before eating. It should make me right with God. What we have with the Pharisees here is an insight into religion. Now, here's the thing. Jesus and the Pharisees here both absolutely agree on something. I hope you notice that. They absolutely agree on something. They agree that people can be defiled. Jesus and the Pharisees are on the same page. People can be stained. People can be marked by sin. But that is all they agree on. Where they totally and completely diverge is in regard to what causes that defilement. And here's where we get our second insight, which is an insight into sin. So the Pharisees believe, what we've seen, is that moral and spiritual defilement is all about you coming into contact with something that, make, that can make you unclean. It's about something external to you making you unclean. Jesus sees it completely differently. And so what he says next is just crucial in our understanding of the Bible's view of sin. Can you look at verse 14? Jesus again called the crowd to him and said, listen to me everyone and understand this. You know, he's really underlining the point. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. And in a simple sentence, Jesus turns the understanding and the philosophy and the tradition and the rituals of the Pharisees totally on its head. 
He says to the Pharisees, you have got it all wrong. It's not things out there that get into you that defile you. It is things in here that get out of you that defile you. And the scene ends and Jesus leaves. And then in our next scene, Jesus is with the disciples, verse 17. And they ask him about what he's just said. And Jesus says to them, are you so dull? <laughs> I mean, are you so dull? I've just sent you out on a mission two by two and you don't know this yet? Now, no, one of the Pharisees didn't get it because the disciples don't. So Jesus explains, verse 18. Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? Because it doesn't go into the heart, into their stomach and then out of the body. Things in, things out, he's saying. In this, Jesus declared all foods clean. He went on. What comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. Do you see what Jesus is saying? He's saying the problem with defilement, with sinfulness, is not out there, friends. It's in here. It's in our hearts. Now, by heart, Jesus means it's at the very centre of who we are. Jesus is actually telling you that your heart is the problem. Sin's not an external problem. It's an internal problem. The Pharisees at this point would have completely disagreed. And I reckon that's easy to understand because the Pharisees at this point simply feel like everybody feels. Everyone disagrees with this. Not just the Pharisees, everyone. I don't need to tell you, do I, how unpopular the notion of personal sinfulness is. You do understand how offensive that is. You know, don't you, that we live in a world that has done away with this antiquated notion that people are sinful. I mean, it belongs to another era. It belongs to another time. And if you watch our culture, you'll notice what people have done today is we have either medicalised, psychologised or socialised sin these days. Have you noticed that? So people aren't sexually immoral anymore. It's great. The world's really improving. No, no, no. We have sex addictions these days. People aren't self-centred and self-focused anymore. No, no, no. They struggle with narcissism. And it's probably their parents' fault. People aren't greedy these days, did you know? No, no, we're just trying to get ahead. We live in a world that says that people are not sinful. We are neutral. That forces out there, they play havoc with us. We're these victims. And Jesus says, no. To a world that says we are not sinful, but sick. Not guilty, but gullible. Not bad, just broken. Jesus says, no. He says it to the Pharisees. He says it to psychologists and doctors and philosophers. And he says it to us because we want to believe it too. Jesus says, our problem, your problem, fundamentally, in this world as we relate to him, is not out there. It's much closer to home. Brothers and sisters, if you've never heard this before, hear it today. You are sinful. Deeply so. I am sinful. We, together, we have hearts that long to ignore God and his truth. And we have hearts that long to live as if we were God and hearts that want to make up our own truth as we go. And as unpopular and as offensive as that sounds to our modern ears, that is exactly what the Bible teaches cover to cover. And here's the thing, unless you believe that, know it and feel it, 
you will never, ever understand the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll never understand why God's only perfect, pure, sinless son had to die on a cross to give his life, to pour his blood out, to cover your sin. You'll never get it. Now, I said before that everyone hates this. Certainly those who don't believe it hate it. Just read the media. But here's the thing. Think about this. Even those of us who do believe this, we hate it too. (laughs) We hate this. How do I know? Here's how I know. Because every single one of us here, me included, every single one of us minimises, justifies or looks externally when we are caught in, called on or made aware of our own sin. Did you know that? Every single one of us does that. Every time. So here's just a, a trite example. So someone at work, imagine someone at work says to you, gee, I wish you'd do some more work. And the first thing we do is what? We say, me? What about you? Or we say, well, I'd love to do some more work, but I'm waiting for a document from. Or we say, yeah, you know what? I'm actually not feeling well today. <laughs> the last thing we do, it should be the first, but the last thing we do is say, you know what? Maybe I am being lazy. Let me have a think about that. I'll get back to you. When was the last time you did that? Now, that's madness, right? Society would break down if you did that. Look, I've chosen a trite example out of a million, but you do know, you have to know, that your first response to your sin is to sin. Did you know that? Your first response to your sin will be to sin. And as the German theologian Karl Barth once famously said, even in our understanding of sin, we are sinful. Brothers and sisters, the problem with our sin is that it is not external, it is internal to us. In 1908, the British newspaper The Times ran a series of essays entitled, What's Wrong with the World? And they asked a number of leading uh, thinkers of the day, authors and poets, to submit essays outlining their perspective as to why the world in 1908 was the shape it was in. Now, one man who was asked to submit his essay was uh, the English writer C.K. Chesterton. Uh, He wrote the shortest essay submitted. In response to the question, what's wrong with the world? He simply wrote, Dear Sirs, I am yours, C.K. Chesterton. I am. C.K. Chesterton's famous essay, if you can call it that, you wouldn't get marks for it at school, but it's profound. It, It captures this 100 years later because it is profound. Because in two words, he captures that very thing that so many of us feel, but we don't dare admit. Some of us can't even put our finger quite on it. And yet, Chesterton here refers to the very thing that Jesus says in Mark 7 is the problem with us all. We have hearts that don't work. But it gets worse, friends. It gets worse. Not only does the Bible tell us we're sinful, it also tells us that there is absolutely nothing we can do about it. So sin is not just things that we do or that desire in us to long to do things that we shouldn't. Sin in the New Testament is also a power. It is the power that enslaves. So sin doesn't merely turn our hearts against God. Sin also is this power that binds us and traps us and prevents us from turning to God to receive his mercy and grace. And there's nothing we can do, is what the Bible says. This is how another author put it. If you prayed every moment of your life, you could never pray enough prayers to earn acceptance with God. If you gave every penny of every dollar that you ever earned in every job you ever had, you could not give enough to deserve acceptance with God. If every word you ever spoke was uttered with the purest of conscientious motivations, you would never be able to speak your way into reconciliation with God. 
If you gave yourself to an unbroken, moment-by-moment life of ministry, you could never minister enough to receive God's favour. Sin is too big. God's bar is too high. It is beyond the reach of every human being who has ever taken his or first breath. Do you remember what ritual washing was about in the Old Testament? It was a symbol to teach that God was pure and that people were not. In case you haven't heard this morning, we are sinners. The problem is internal and there is nothing we can do. Now, you might be sitting here today and this is the very first time you've ever heard it and you may well be feeling quite shocked. Yeah, the Bible's teaching on this is shocking. (laughs) You would be right to feel that. So this naturally raises the question for all of us, doesn't it? Then what, what can we do? If we're sinners, the problem's internal, we've got bad hearts, and there's nothing we can do about it, what hope is there for anyone? And this is where our third story comes in. This is where we get our insight into grace. This is why the chapter 7 reading had to keep going. I think you'll be thankful now. So we're at verses 24 to 30. Jesus now moves out of Jewish areas, and he's entered a Gentile area. He enters a house, and then the story zooms in on this interaction with a woman. A woman who has sought him out because she's in desperate circumstances. We find out that her daughter is demon-possessed. So she finds Jesus, falls at his feet and begs him to drive the demon out. And then Jesus says something really strange and striking to our ears. So in verse 27, can you see that? Jesus says, in response to the, the lady's request, first let, children, sorry, first let the children eat all they want, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs which sounds like Jesus is calling this woman a dog. And, by comparison, he is. So Jesus here is using the example of a first century family that had parents with children and a dog. And this Gentile woman asks him for help and Jesus says, it's not right for me to help you now in the same way that it's not right to feed your dog before you'd feed your kids. What he's saying to this woman is, I've come for my own people first. I am Israel's Messiah. I've come for Israel first. And then quick as a flash, this woman says, Lord, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Notice what she doesn't say. She doesn't say, how dare you call me a dog? Who do you think you are? She doesn't say, How dare you prioritise people? Who are you to rank people? She doesn't then say, isn't my daughter precious to you? All the things that would flash through our sinful minds, quick as that. All the things we'd want to say. What she says is this. Sure, you don't give your children's bread to the dogs. But the dog is welcome to come under the table and eat up the crumbs. What she's actually saying is, I may well be a dog, but even dogs receive small blessings from the families to which they are close. It's powerful, isn't it? What she does is she shows both humility and insight. So she's prepared to acknowledge that she's a Gentile, a dog, with absolutely no claim on the kingdom of God or on Israel's Messiah. And yet she stands before Jesus with great humility and with great hope and with great faith and says, 
can you help me? And she's right to do so because in verses 29 and 30, we read this. Jesus told her, for such a reply, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. She went home and found her child lying on her bed and the demon gone. And friends, here we get our insight into grace. And here, at the very same time, we get our answer to this problem of our personal defilement, our sin, our our bad hearts, our internal issue that we can do nothing about. We get the insight here. And it comes to us, did you notice this? From the most unclean of the most unclean, a Greek Syrophoenician, notice we're given this detail that we didn't even get about the bleeding woman two chapters earlier, a Greek Syrophoenician woman with a demon-possessed daughter. She couldn't be more unclean. And here's what it shows us. The only way for defiled people with bad hearts to find help is to seek out Jesus with great humility, with great hope, with great faith, and to say to him, will you help me? Will you forgive me? Will you purify me? Will you wash me? Will you make me clean that I might find peace with my God. Let me finish by addressing one more thing. Uh, There will be people here today who feel that it is unkind, unfair, and very possibly repugnant for God to say that people are sinful. I understand that well. Uh, It's kind of shocking. There will also be people here today who find it unkind, unfair, and very possibly repugnant that Jesus would call this woman a dog. I understand that well. It's kind of shocking. But think about this. If Jesus did not tell this woman she was a dog, with no right to claim any blessing from him, she could never have responded in the right way. No, it was Jesus' diagnosis of her that was to enable her to respond the right way. What way was that? The way of humility and hope and faith. And in exactly the same way, if Jesus did not tell us that we were sinful, debased, entrapped and enslaved, and that there was nothing we could do about it, then we could not respond to him in the right way. No, it is Jesus' diagnosis of the way we are that enables us to seek him rightly. What way is that? The way of humility, the way of hope, and the way of faith. But the fact is that Jesus does tell us where we stand. He tells us, We are sinful. He tells us we have a heart issue so that we might turn to him and ask him for help and seek his forgiveness and allow his death on the cross to cover our sin, wash us clean and set us free. Let's pray. Our good and gracious Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for Mark 7. For without it, we would be without one key teaching in the Bible about the nature of sin. And we would be affirmed in our desire, Father, to just always blame forces beyond us. But you and your mercy show us that the problem is much more subtle, much more serious and much more personal. Father, for those of us sitting here today who perhaps have never really considered this, but who long to put things right with you, 
Father, we ask that you might forgive them as they repent of their sin. Turn to you and allow your son's death on the cross to pay the penalty for that sin. We pray this in Jesus' name.